I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. In the beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. So my guests are Leanne Domash and Terry Marks Tarlow, both of whom have been on the show more than once. Leanne Domash is a clinical psychotherapist, a playwright, and the author of Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy, Welcome to Wonderland, which is a wonderful title. Terry Marks Tarlow is also a clinical psychotherapist and an artist who has written numerous books. The list is too long for me to read off. She also writes many articles on play, creativity, nonlinear science, and intuition in psychotherapy. And together, they've created a new graphic novel titled The Eel and the Blowfish, a graphic novel of dreams, trauma, and healing. So Terry and Leanne, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, Tonio. It's been years since we've spoken. Mm-hmm. Many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. And Leanne, I think we spoke about a year ago or maybe two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And we had several, which were yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed both of you so much. I love the way you really focus a lot on creativity. Yeah, that's that's our 
deep interest. Yeah. It's also our common thread. Yeah. So what inspired the two of you to want to create a graphic novel of all? Oh, so that was her idea. <laughs> and you got, but you're, you're the main artist, right? I am the only artist, the although only. you could say we're both the artists in the sense that we spent hours and hours together on Zoom while I was drawing. And so Leanne has very much a hand in what came out, but it was my hand that did the actual drawing. Yeah, I just got the idea for a graphic novel, although I really didn't know what it entailed. And I just wanted to present something to patients, to clinicians, that was more fun, that was visual, that looked like a comic book, but was much more serious than that. And especially with the idea of sexual trauma, it's such a heavy topic that this helps reduce the anxiety of the reader that it's presented in imagistic form. And Terry and I met synchronistically because we were supposed to meet when Terry was speaking at a conference in New York, but that couldn't work out. So, but then I wrote to Terry after seeing what she was writing and realized that we have such similar interests. I just said, we have to meet. And so we did meet because Terry was coming to New York for the premiere of an opera. She wrote the lyrics for of all things, talk about of all things. And so we met and I presented this idea to her and we just went with it. So you saw her fractal opera? Yeah. Wow. It was amazing, beautiful. Although actually, this was a different one that yeah. we saw than that first fractal one. This one was a crazy, crazy project where I had to be Dylan Thomas and the composer was essentially in the style of Stravinsky. And we were finishing the opera that the two of them were going to start. But when Dylan Thomas came to the United States, he basically drank himself to death in New York City. And so they never did it. So this project scared the pejeebies out of me. But, um, but, but in a way, it was fractal because you were imagining what Dylan Thomas would have written. So you were kind of an echo of him. That is very true. Although when I tried to do it that way, when I tried to channel him, it blew me out because he was such a nasty person. He was so toxic in being an alcoholic, a womanizer, bad to his children, a horrible father, etc. So I wound up taking the role of the therapist of Dylan Thomas instead of him. And that made it easier. But but you're right. I mean, okay. that's still a form of... But it's of, a fractal once removed. Exactly. Yes. So it has fractal elements, as does everything. But <laughs> including our novel has a little bit of fractal elements to it. And another fractal aspect of the novel is that we did this novel throughout COVID. And so we were healing ourselves from the isolation and depression of COVID, while at the same time, we were helping the characters to heal, while at the same time, the characters would help the readers heal. Mm. Yeah, 
This is a big book. I've got it right here in my hands. If either of you happen to have a copy, um, actually, our listeners are not going to be able to see it. I was going to ask you to hold it up, but no point in doing that. Did you forget you're on the radio, Tonya? I did. That's what happens when I see your faces on the screen. I find myself in a different world than I normally am in. But you know what? We have a website devoted to the book called eelandblowfish.com. And any listener can just go to that website and you'll see all kinds of information about the book, including the beautiful cover. Yes, it's beautiful images. I loved the illustrations in it. As I said, it's a big book. It's actually 240 pages, but it's really easy to read. It's a true graphic novel. I read through it in one sitting. It probably only took me maybe less than an hour to read the whole thing. And it was really very easy to read. The first time I I read the first half of it, this was about a month ago when we were first negotiating our schedules. And then I decided I would put it down and wait until we actually got around to talking about it. So yesterday, I read through the entire book. And yeah, it's my first response when I heard that you guys had written a graphic novel was, wow, the two of you were like the last people on earth, I would imagine would come up with an idea like this. But then when I actually read it, it was a wonderful, wonderful idea because it really makes this whole subject so easily accessible to people. And what I was thinking is that people who aren't in therapy, who are maybe afraid of therapy or or don't understand therapy, you know what the benefits of it could be, or just are too terrified of their own inner issues, you know, the past that they may not even be fully aware of, but can feel deep down buried inside and are terrified of and don't want to, you know, open up that proverbial Pandora's box. Um, This book could really open up the doorway to seeing how easy, well, easy is not the right term, but perhaps easy to start the process of looking into this Mm -hmm. area and that anybody can actually do this and survive. Because that's one of the things that occurred to me is that the trauma of sexual abuse and incest is one of those things, like the way the story begins, like page one, Tony, who is the protagonist, a young woman, she, I think she she's having a nightmare where she's underwater and she's, you know, stuck. She can't move. And she's with her older brother who had raped her. And I think this experience of feeling trapped, like trapped underground or underwater where we can't move. And we're in the situation that we don't understand the cause of or why it's happened or how we got there, that it can create this incredibly intense sense of despair because from that place of not understanding any of the dynamics in the situation, we have no idea how to escape it or to survive being in that situation and how utterly paralyzing that can be. And I think we have all at some point in our life experienced ourselves being in a situation or circumstance in our lives like that. Very well 
said, Tonio. I mean, I wondered how we would talk about a graphic novel that is all visual on the radio, but you just did a beautiful job of taking that first page and completely translating that psychologically in ways that would take so many words compared to an image. And yet, you know, you spelled it out beautifully, as well as spelling out why the book is in the format it's in and how it can reach people in a deeper but safer way. Yeah. And Tony, the protagonist, she's utterly terrified. She's in this situation. She's had this nightmare, which is opening up her memory of the trauma. But again, she's starting out from a place of not knowing how to deal with it and being too terrified. Like there's a line where she says, I'm in so much pain, but I'm numb. I feel like a kid again, trying to disappear. Mm -hmm. And that's our initial response to these circumstances. So that makes it so difficult for us to reach out for help. Because from that place of being stuck, we're trapped in this subterranean place of darkness and fear and trauma and pain and numbness. We can't even imagine there being a solution. Exactly. That's the point of the book, that this is a therapeutic tool to offer hope for a solution. And another thing that's an interesting synchronicity is I just finished reading a book that explores the sexual abuse that has been so prevalent in the Catholic Church. Mm. And that partially reveals how prevalent sexual abuse is in our culture. Yeah. Mm. And, and unfortunately, most men are largely ignorant of it because they don't want to even look at that dark nature that exists within themselves or ourselves, because we have been brought up to feel like we have the upper hand in terms of power dynamics, like we're physically stronger. Our society is set up to favor men over women. And not even to mention the shame that we've been brought up with that's, you know, enculturated in our religious culture, even if we're not religious. It's so it underlies, undergirds our entire society and the way we relate to things. So the shame around sexuality to begin with, you know, regardless of, you know, beyond sexual abuse or incest, there's just so much shame around sexuality itself. And then with sexual abuse or incest, that just creates an exponentially increased sense of not okayness about the whole thing, of shame and that there's something wrong with us. You know, if we find ourselves in that situation, that there's something deeply and fundamentally wrong with us. See, that's how a graphic novel can help because the images give the reader the aesthetic distance to step back and reflect. And the images also act as a witness so the reader doesn't feel so alone. And then the images are very playful. So that reduces the defensiveness of the reader. But one thing you said, Tonio, that I was curious about, you said that we were the last people that you would imagine would have the idea for a graphic novel. And I wondered why that is, which would lead into a discussion of creativity, I think. Why did you think that? I'm curious. 
I wouldn't normally have thought of anybody using the graphic novel format for healing or psychotherapy. Uh. Because in our culture, it is normally used for these kind of violent comic book stories. Right. Well, you know, there is a new field now called graphic medicine. Oh. And ironically, a doctor that I was looking at as to whether I should go to see him, he throughout his residency did a continuous comic strip about his trials and tribulations of being a resident. And he got it published over and over again in the Annals of Internal Medicine or something. But there are a lot of memoirs now and a lot of informational graphic novels about disease, illness, again, to reduce the anxiety of the patient and allow them to have information in an accessible form. So this is becoming very popular. And some publishing houses are even having imprints just for graphic medicine. That said, I do think we are on the forefront. We're really not aware of anyone else in our field who has quite used it in this fashion. But also, people are recognizing the power of imagery, that, that actually imagery reaches deeper into the body and deeper into the unconscious than words do. And just yesterday, I came across that someone has redone the periodic table in chemistry through visual imagery, where each element is a cartoon character. And it's fabulous. It's such a better teaching tool than the straight information. And so as the body gets more and more central in psychotherapy, in the understanding of what needs to change, I think that imagery will get more central. I hope that imagery will get more central in conveying information like as we've done. I think it's brilliant. I think it's utterly brilliant for all those reasons that you that you've just laid out. It's so much more accessible for those of us who didn't grow up in the ivory tower of academia or the professional clinical environment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you said something really interesting to me about how quickly you read it and our process just the uh, balance between words and images changed radically as we went through different drafts of this, where we started out with a lot of words on each page, including educational stuff. And then we shaved it and shaved it and shaved it to be minimalist and to appreciate as minimal as we could get of the words to let the images speak for themselves. But it really took us a long time to understand how to do that. Yeah, less is more, once again. And you do a great job of illustrating facial expressions, which speak louder than words. We also tried to vary the imagery, because one of our many ideas was that this book was going to be a movie inside a book. And then we dropped that idea because it was too complicated. But we kept the idea of an aerial shot or a close-up shot or just the legs, or just the mouth. So we hope that we have a lot of visual interest that's somewhat like a film, but it's still a book. Yeah, and I think books work better because it allows people to enter into them more than a movie, even though it is graphic. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting bridge between a book 
and a film. Yeah, I think of it as a play myself, like yeah. theater. Like these people are talking and behaving and acting, you know. Yeah, and the imagery, again, it's a large book. It's large so that the illustrations are large, the characters are large on the page, and there are very few words, essentially just dialogue. And mm -hmm. this is all really done in a very relational way, which also, I think, made it feel so much, not just accessible, but also relatable and warm feeling, like of opening up a huge doorway of possibility, because Tony, your protagonist, has her best friend with her throughout this, as well as her therapist. So she's working with a therapist, a skilled therapist who's implementing your practices, and she has her best friend. And there's an interesting dynamic between Tony and her best friend, Lulu, because Tony is very emotional, and her best friend is, I think she's a, a psychology professor, so she's very right. analytical and very rational. And you also talk about myths in this. Because of the nature of the book, you don't really go into myths much, but you bring the concept into this graphic novel amazingly effectively considering how few words are being used here. And then you talk about how we can integrate both the left and right brain, and Tony and her best friend Lulu are these personifications of the right and left brain in a very graphic sense. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wonderful dynamic. So I would love for you to talk about how you can use myths to like bridge the left and right brain so that you can accomplish the kind of healing and opening up of these subterranean realms within us, buried memories and very difficult uncomfortable emotions that, you know, revolve around our initial, often childhood traumas? So I will take the lead on this question, because my latest book is called Mythic Imagination Today, the Interpenetration of Mythology and Science. And I think that when people start to understand their own history mythically, it gets elevated from being small and individual to being large and universal. And all of the stories that we read or see in films that we resonate most deeply with tend to have this mythic quality to it. And each culture tends to have representations um, these universal, this was, you know, Jung's notion that central components of myth are universal and represented differently in different cultures, but similar elements. And so we initially were going to write this as a myth, but then decided that it's too serious a topic to treat completely mythically. And so you're very perceptive, Tonio, that you picked this up, how important it was. So we included some mythic elements like the shadow and the trickster and some spiritual images at the end and the mandala and this sort of thing, because this, again, helps to elevate the story 
beyond the reader, beyond the incident. We wanted it to have a transcendental quality as well. So the mandala can be the story of Tony's life, but it's also a more universal image. The Ouroboros is a very universal image, and we have that with Tony and Charlie being part of the Ouroboros, but it also suggests that every ending has a new beginning and every beginning has an ending. And so we wanted to include a spiritual element also, spirituality in the good sense of the word, not in the where I think you alluded to, you know, the guilt over sexuality and some religions and so on. Spirituality in the good sense of the word gives people hope. It allows them to have faith that they can overcome some of these hardships they've experienced. So I, you know, I and Terry wanted there to be that kind of quality sprinkled throughout the book. And getting back to the myth element, most of the myths, you know, the the well-known mythologies are these stories of trauma of different mm-hmm. sorts. There's there's often incest, there's murder, there's rape. Mm-hmm. There are all these extremely traumatic experiences. I think even though these mythologies were, I believe they were created for all of us to be able to tap into so that we could relate them to our own lives. I don't think that most people actually make that connection directly with our own lives. So the way you did it in this graphic novel is you actually brought it down to earth in a very personal and relatable way that we can easily see rather than reading mythology and Greek tragedies and even while intellectually understanding that there's some connection between what they're talking about and our experience, but not actually making a true visceral connection. You know, I think you picked again on a kind of unconscious process that was going on between us because we were searching for how to present this story. First, I wanted it to be a fairy tale because I thought that would be like so neat. And that didn't work. Then we thought of a movie. And that didn't work. And we finally settled on this. But we were looking for a way to use that flavor of myth in the book, but make it more down to earth and respectful of the trauma. So, you know, I think you picked up our search. So could you describe how you brought myth into this or modeled this graphic novel on the notion of myth, you know, how you connected the two in here, because our listeners right now haven't read this yet, so they don't really know what's in it. So I would love for you to give them a sense of how that worked in here. Well, I think the use of dreams is somewhat myth-like because it's very unconscious And we have a lot of dreams sprinkled throughout the book. We immediately introduce the idea of the shadow, you know, the dark side of ourselves or of other people. We introduce the trickster, which we hoped would give Tony courage to face things because the trickster can reframe things and be sly and figure out a way to overcome. And then those images at the end really take you into another plane. And then finally, at the end, 
all the characters are up in the sky, more or less as constellations. So we're kind of always playing with reality and surreality, because it's surreal sometimes, as well as real. But we wanted to keep good balance. And I think it's very important to show respect for the subject. So that's what we tried to do. And as you were saying that, it just occurred to me that these qualities, these mythic qualities of the trickster and, and other aspects that exist within all of us could be looked at as kind of superpowers that can help us when we feel trapped and stuck in a situation where yeah. we don't where we don't see any way out or any way of surviving. I love that. Yeah. And they're imaginary companions that can give you courage. And Tony goes through that a lot because she gains power in that first dream. And then later, there's a very graphic image of penises, if I can say that word on the radio, where she feels her full power. And it really is a story of feeling powerless to feeling really healthy power. But Terry, you were going to say something? That the ancient Greek figure of the muses and being visited by the muse is very much what Tonio was describing there of how to empower. And fits very nicely with your description of the empowerment of Tony throughout the novel. And one of the techniques that you use, and I think this is one of your techniques, Leanne, embodied imagination technique for working with dreams and the core elements, the powerful emotional elements of our dreams and the imagery. Right. That's a technique I studied for three years intensively, and now I'm considered a practitioner of it. But it was developed by Robert Bosnack, a Jungian analyst. And I'm actually taking another course of his right now, how you can do this embodied imagination on yourself without having a guide like a therapist or a dream worker. But I find that that technique is so powerful. Like it helped me unleash my creativity. That's why I took the course, but I'm still using it. Even last week, I used it and I was able to go back to my six-year-old self. I know that sounds like weird, but in my dream, I did. And it's quite an amazing, and you can recapture some of that vitality you felt then. And actual, in this dream, power. A five or six-year-old kid can sometimes feel really powerful. So it's a great technique for creativity. So since we're on this particular subject, I would love for you to talk about how that technique works, because we had discussed this yeah. in our earlier conversations, but reading this new graphic novel, you take Tony through this process with her therapist step-by-step step in this graphic novel. So I would love for you to walk us through how this embodied imagination technique works. Okay. If you happen to know a dream you just had, I can tell you what I would do with it. People don't always, you know, I know you can't produce a dream on demand. Use Tony's dream. I mean, use yeah. the, the ah, yeah. Okay, I can use the dream in the book. Okay, so she's underwater and she feels very powerless. 
and she sees her brother. She's pretty angry with him, but then she becomes a blowfish and she feels power in her spikes and she has toxins and she turns him into an eel and tricks him to think that he can do anything, but then she blows him up. So first we bring her into a hypnagogic state by doing a relaxation technique and a body scan. And the dream worker does it too. So you're both in a hypnagogic state. Then she tells the dream. Then you pick a few select images and you try to pick a habitual image of how the person sees themselves. So it's easy. And then you pick a couple of alien images so that you sort of have those images interpenetrate in the dream worker's mind. So first she embodied her fear and then she embodied her power. Then we forced her to go into Charlie, which is the most alien image for her to feel his fear. And then another image was her heart she felt her heart was broken, that she killed him. And you take these images and you think of how you're embodying them. You feel them. You feel the fear in Charlie. You feel the broken heart. You feel the anger at Charlie. And you repeat them over and over to yourself. You practice them in what's called a composite. And you do that for a week or two. 10, 15 minutes a day, if you can do that, so that these images get carried almost to the edge of chaos, and then something new happens. And you'll find that new patterns develop, new perspectives develop, you're able to reframe things, and it expands your imagination. So what you're talking about is you're taking these powerful emotions, like feeling stuck, or powerless, weak, which is the familiar story of the trauma that keeps us locked into that pattern. And Mm -hmm. then hopefully within the dream, you have some foreign elements, which in this case would be the experiences of powerfulness. And then you embody all Mm -hmm. of them by practicing this for a couple of weeks, as you say, you can simultaneously embody all of them at the same time. And and there's a practice I learned many years ago where you take opposite ideas Mm -hmm. or conflicting ideas and you imagine them at opposite ends of a huge room and then you have them come together at high speed and crash in the middle. And it's a way of like short-circuiting the rational brain. And like an atom smasher, new things just magically appear And in this experience of simultaneously holding these different powerful emotions, both negative and positive, both desired and undesired, when you can hold them all together at once, it's as if a magical portal opens up. It's like, you know, with the key, there's these tumblers, it's a complex kind of a puzzle. And once you get them aligned or combined in the right way, it unlocks the, Mm -hmm. the lock. It's sort of like that happens inside of us when we can hold all of that together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. Bosnak doesn't feel that these images are all part of the self. He feels the habitual image is part of the self. 
these other images are alien images that we can learn from. So Tony both feels the power of the blowfish, but she also feels the fear of Charlie. And this is totally alien to her to feel into his fear. She doesn't want to feel anything he feels. So like we're forcing her to look at it from his point of view too. And all of these different perspectives we can learn from. Mm, I love that aspect of expanding our universe beyond just ourself, because that's what the ego does is it locks us into our own personal story and right. and locks everybody else out as being other than right. us. Right. And, this, right. and this, this notion of, of a foreign element, I think opens up the possibility of seeing things in a broader perspective that even though it's foreign on the surface of it, it's not nearly as foreign as we've made it out to be or been led to believe it to be. Right, right. I know. It's interesting. This is true on an individual level. And then I was talking to somebody this morning, and he's a political scientist, and he was talking about the need for this between countries. You know, you can't look at the country as the other. You have to embody the country to some extent and really sense what they're about. Yeah. Getting back to those fractal nested layers of this, you know, embodied at all levels of the world around us. Yeah, yeah. Within ourselves, with each other, and between countries, and who knows, between planets. Yeah, exactly. Like the notion that, uh, you know, we think they talk about aliens from outer space. In a universe that's one wholeness, there's nothing alien in this universe. We're all interconnected. We're all related. We're related to even the most foreign, most alien things in, in the universe. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I loved what you said as well about these opposite experiences crashing with each other and something new coming out of it, because sometimes what's alien is the integration of these opposite things. And I think psychologically, that's one of the most difficult thing for people to do is to integrate opposite experiences and recognize opposite experiences. And sometimes what feels alien is actually just the unconscious part of the continuum that is already inside of us, but we just don't recognize it. And I personally happen to think paradox is at the heart of the universe everywhere. It's in at the heart of the universe in physics. It's in the heart of the universe in our psyches. And when it comes to perpetrator and survivor, that needs to be integrated in everyone. You know, sur victims become survivors when they gain power to heal themselves and reclaim their own power. And perpetrators need to have the empathy of and understand their own hurt place inside that causes them to become perpetrators. And we did illustrate that in the novel because the perpetrator feels tremendous remorse and Tony is able to help him despite her anger at him. She keeps both of those ideas in her mind. And the loss of empathy is one of the biggest tragedies of trauma for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
And currently in our society, we're seeing the fear that many people in a certain segment of our population have of losing their sense of personal identity that's locked up in their own personal polarized perspective of themselves and their clan or their tribe or who they belong to, as opposed to the other side who they see as being a mortal threat to their well-being and their survival. And we see it played out in our political arena here in this country and all over the world. Yeah. And actually, from a neurobiological point of view, it's interesting that oxytocin is the trust molecule. And it's the one that when women are pregnant and they're nursing and they have their child and all of that is central for the building of trust. But the shadow side is it's also the mistrust molecule because in order to have an in-group, you have to have an out-group. And so when people are perceived as being in the out-group, the very same molecule drives their persecution in protection of identity, just like you're saying, or in protection of the group or the culture, what have you. But I think that the world is needing an expansion of all of these ideas, just as you were saying earlier, so that everyone is perceived as being in the in-group and perhaps the violation to the earth is the out-group or the external threats that are global need to become the out-group in order to help us gain the empathy that we all need for one another. And it's so wonderful how oxytocin physiologically dissolves the mechanism in our brain that creates and holds on to boundaries. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that was interesting to me is I just had a new grandchild and I was there. I was fortunate to be there a few days after my daughter gave birth. And I thought that it was just for nursing mothers, the oxytocin, but I totally felt it with this newborn. And I was like in a state of bliss. And I was like, I was amazed at the chemical feeling. And I totally felt I was communicating with him completely. I think we can actually learn to, um, we can do things that can generate oxytocin. Like I learned this from my cat. Like I would look at her from across the room and I would send her a cat kiss, you know, a slow blink and mm -hmm. she would respond and she would start purring. And after a while I realized she's having this, magical experience of love. And so I started purring. I mean, it just occurred to me to try it out. So I, I practiced purring, you know, my human approximation of it, but it actually creates a visceral vibration in my body that actually generates what feels to me like oxytocin because it creates a kind of a love vibration, the kind of love vibration that you get when you are immersed in a deeply pleasurable experience of the present moment. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I've been reading about some Kabbalah spiritual writings and they talk about the Shekinah, which is the female presence of God on earth. And my image of this is like an oxytocin kind of thing where this force is generating kind of love and kind of healing 
rifts and disruptions. And I was thinking that seeing patients, sometimes I feel that love, that Shekinah love towards them. And not all the time, but just sometimes. But it's an interesting thing. Like I was thinking how to bring Shekinah into the consulting room. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that because I've played with various things like that over the years. And um, yeah, anything that we can bring, it's like a new kind of mythological superpower. You know? Yeah, well, she is a superpower. Right. And we can embody that. Exactly. With intention, we can actually embody that because, I mean, that's why they exist. They don't exist to be separate from us. They exist to be models for us. And if we want to take it deeper to be embodiments of who we are and what's possible for us. Right. So right. I, in my Awakening Clinical Intuition workbook, I have a guided imagery that invites people to sort of weave a kind of a butterfly cocoon around themselves and then emerge as a superhero with a specific power and to look down and see what that power is and go on an adventure and this sort of thing. And over the years, and especially because I, of course, had to do this on myself first and noticed that my own superpower was the inverse of my greatest vulnerability. And so as a child, I sort of grew up among big personalities who were much older than I, and I felt invisible. And what was my superpower? Invisibility. So I could go anywhere and see everything. And in a way, that sort of transmutation of our greatest weakness and vulnerability into our strengths is at the essence of the healing process. Mm, I love that so much. I just recently had a conversation with somebody about that process. You know, they call it imaginal cells or imaginal cellular transformation. That's yeah. what technically is in the butterfly. Yeah. And she was talking about how we are all designed to do this all the time within mm. ourselves. You mean to constantly transform ourselves? Well, we're always. We're always transforming one way or another, whether we're just by default recreating the old story or whether we are intentionally inviting in change. Mm. And in a sense, using that superpower of imaginal cellular metamorphosis, which is just a fancy way of saying that in the unfolding flow of life, everything is changing. Everything is constantly changing. Yeah. And if we understand that that's actually the nature of life and the universe itself, then we can effortlessly tap into that if we don't have too many um, ideas that that's beyond us or not possible for us. Yeah. Isn't it ironic that it's only our minds that don't recognize that? Our bodies know that they're changing all the time. And it's just our, especially our left brain, not, not our right, that get stuck in story. Yeah, that reminds me of this wonderful thing that I learned many years ago from uh, John Lilly's book, Center of the Cyclone. Are either of you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was uh, a friend of my brother's. Yeah. Yeah. He came up with this formula. I mean, he distilled this formula that basically says, 
what we believe to be true either is true or becomes true within the limits of the mind. And in the province of the mind, there are no limits. Mm. So the mind is unlimited and the mind can limit itself and trick itself into thinking that it doesn't have the power or the freedom to do whatever it is that we might want to do or that is most innate and natural in us. Mm. You sound like the history of mathematics where the search for absolute truth devolved with Gödel, who proved that there's no limit <laughs> to, to knowledge and expansion. And I think, you know, the mind, you're also reminding me of fractal geometry and like a fractal zoom, which is only limited by computational time, just like meditation and going deeper into the self is only limited by the time we spend doing it. So I, I agree. I, I like that idea that you're saying, Tonio, that that we trick ourselves into thinking there are limits when there really aren't. Mm. But to grasp that, I mean, that gets into the territory of God and infinity. Yeah. One of my favorite areas to, to dive into. <laughs> <laughs> whenever I can, whenever I, I love to indulge in that, particularly in the morning before I get out of bed, I'll sometimes I'll allow myself to, to hang out in a kind of liminal state for an hour or two and just, you know, nebulously hang out in that space and allow anything or nothing to come out of that. Mm. Well, many times, this is what we struggle with, with patients. They put limits on their mind and their body. And we're trying to work with them to show them that there is a limitless world out there. But another way of looking at it is also that we are continuously being born. Every moment we're born and reborn. So this is a constant creation going on. I'm so glad that you said that because I was wanting to go there, but I wasn't sure how to, you know, create that bridge. And you just said it perfectly. And I would love to hear how you approach that when you're working with somebody who you can clearly see is locked in to a prison of their own self-imposed limits. And you can see that they only exist within the frame of their own thoughts and beliefs. Well, sometimes I have people who are only interested in the end product, whatever it is. And the process is very frightening to them because the process isn't perfect. And I just sometimes discuss how I love the unformed aspect of the process. Like when a kid is like learning to walk and he's stumbling all over. That's so interesting compared to when he's walking like everybody else. And I want them to kind of really love the process of exploring, making mistakes, doing the wrong thing, figuring out how they can correct it. To me, that's the most interesting part of creativity. And that's the part that I find a lot of people are frightened of. They're not going to do it right. It won't work out. It is no good anyway. It's not perfect. So I guess I, I want them to enjoy the mess. 
So it's so interesting to hear your answer, Leanne, to that question. I had a similar uh, related but very different one um, because you're, you're inviting the patient to share in that creative process and love the creative process. And the way I was going to answer the question was that for me, that is the creative process for me, a less relational answer in therapy in that each person is so different and gets stuck in such a different way. And I think of it as I just play, I'm playing all the time for how to break through and where to break through and where the opening is going to be. So I will try a thousand different ways of helping to break through that rigid thought process or rigid structure. And I can't predict what's going to work and what isn't. And But that's the fun of it for me. But I love what you said about making that whole process very conscious to the person, which sometimes I definitely do, especially if I'm struggling with how to help a person break through, because I find that that can help transcend it in itself. When a person sees that someone else is stuck at the same time with them, they don't personalize it as much and it can open the door to a more relational solution. Also, the way I view it and the way I sometimes explain it is that beginning process, the terrible first draft or whatever it is, or the painting that just doesn't look right, or that's really part of your unconscious coming out. It's much more right brain than later when you start to perfect it. And I say, this is like a fascinating chance to get a glimpse of your unconscious. This is when we can really see it. And so it's very interesting. So like a core dynamic in all of this is our relationship to the unknown and how we approach it. And it sounds like one of the jobs that you take on when you're working with clients is somehow to invite them to open up to and become more comfortable with the unknown, because that unconscious part of ourselves is this so far dark, unexplored territory that for many people is terrifying. Mm -hmm. But there's also a way to enjoy it. And maybe as Terry says, to play with it. So it can be fun also. So it sounds like using play to trick them into entering places that they normally might be terrified of. Yeah, absolutely. And you can call it a trick. And it can be a trick if it's needed as a trick. But it's also necessary to change and unless people can go through a phase of not knowing and uncertainty. They're not going to break out of their patterns because it's the need for certainty and to be right and to know that sticks them in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I can give a very concrete example, which, you know, saddens me. But, you know, a patient can say, I have a terrible marriage, but can you guarantee me I'll meet somebody else if I leave him? So, P.S., never leave him because you can't get the guarantee. But meanwhile, you have a terrible marriage. You have to be able to tolerate the uncertainty that you don't know if you're going to meet someone else. You can try to, you know, help yourself meet someone else, but you don't have any guarantee. Any change requires some tolerance of uncertainty. Oh, yeah. 
tolerance, that old window of affect tolerance and learning to expand that window. Could you talk about how you go about helping your clients do that? Well, play is certainly one way because you can't play unless there's safety. And one of the main things we do as therapists is provide a safe environment to play and to play with possibilities. And and when there are no serious consequences, it's a lot easier to try out new things, which is why children's play is how they learn the most and why actually an article just came out in the Journal of Pediatrics on February 23rd about the decline in independent activity as a cause of decline in children's well-being. There's an epidemic of mental health problems in children, partly because they're deprived of play. So I think in many ways, the creative process does come down to a form of play and that therapy itself is a form of play that allows people to experiment with novelty. And a lot of the current mental health crisis is the anxiety of parents who feel they have to program everything which doesn't allow enough time for unstructured play. And this is an epidemic, and this is everywhere, it seems, at least while I live in New York City, so really bad here. But kids are so programmed that they don't have time to be creative. I'm talking with Leanne Domash and Terry Marks Tarlow, and this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. Right. And to come up with their own rules and their own agency and all of that. In fact, I'm just giving a keynote tomorrow for the Rye conference and Rye works with infants and young children. And it's on this topic of how to foster intuition in children through play. But we do this with our patients. It's all about helping them get back in touch with their basic intuition about how they need to move in the world as opposed to looking for outer answers. I wanted to say something about parents because I was just thinking about this this morning, that having a child is like an enormous potentially creative project. You facilitate the child, but you cannot over-program them or it won't be a creative project. The child has to develop with you as support. And I think that many parents cannot tolerate the anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen to their child. So they over-program them thinking they're satisfying their own anxiety, but that ironically is to the detriment of the child. And there's a parable in Jeremiah about the potter and his clay, and the potter thinks that he knows what the pot is going to become, but the pot really decides what it's going to be. And (laughs) parents have to realize that. And I think there's a huge problem with their ability to tolerate the uncertainty of not knowing what the child will develop into. Yeah, I would like to add to that because I think there's a one, two punch there. One is not being able to tolerate the uncertainty And the other is not having time and patience to wait for the child to come to these things themselves. So, for example, I have a patient who is an extremely successful, I'll say billionaire, self-made woman, who is a mother who came to therapy because of 
enmeshment with her 30-something-year-old daughter who can't make her own decisions because, and the mother explicitly says this, that in business, you've got to go fast, fast, fast and decide and you can't be indecisive. And so she talked for her daughter her whole life. And now the daughter, you know, is there enmeshed with one another and the mother has to learn to step back. So it's both not tolerating the uncertainty of not knowing out of fear for the child and danger. And the other is not tolerating the time it takes for children to discover themselves. Right. Yeah. And if we thought it was hard enough to deal with our own personal issues, then when we have a child, we then project our stuff onto them. And then it becomes even harder because they're one step removed from our ability to control reality. (laughs) And this is why the shadow is the first stage in union developmental progression, that we have to deal face our own shadow before we can successfully mate with someone else and then take that relationship to have children without projecting all our shadow stuff onto the child. Yeah, because what we don't take responsibility for and deal with in ourselves gets passed on to our children. Yeah. And that's a fractal epigenetic transmission we now know. And especially for sexual acting out is one of the highest epigenetic transmissible qualities. A humorous example of not having patience to let things develop When my son was five, he took an intelligence test, and apparently the tester was very aggressive and kept moving him along. And afterwards, he came out and he said to me, there's a seed, make it grow. (laughs) (laughs) He saw that she wasn't allowing anything to unfold, like she was trying to force the growth of the seed. It was interesting. Years ago, many years ago, I taught first grade and the school wisely wouldn't let the parents teach the kids early to read because you learn to read when your brain is ready to read. So if you force a three-year-old to read and they're not ready, you're just going to frustrate them. Whereas by six, usually everybody reads. And so what we did was there was a special phonetic alphabet that was developed in England 43 characters, and we use that alphabet to teach them to read. So the parents couldn't read it. Only the kids could. And the kids loved it. And the kids could write anything because it was just phonetic. So you didn't have to spell or worry about spelling. And then at the end of the year, they sort of automatically made the switch to regular English. But these were very aggressive New York parents in this private school that were forcing learning on their kids. So we kind of like worked around it and it was, it was a lot of fun. Wow. It just reminded me, you must really have your hands full dealing with New York parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can be very obnoxious, really. Not to generalize, not all, but many, many I that I see. And yeah. Los Angeles the same. It's ju- yeah. absolutely with the entertainment and with the wealth and all of that stuff. I think it's very similar. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. It's interesting to deal with these people. Sometimes they're very cooperative because they're like CEOs and they come to a quote expert. This has surprised me recently. And they do everything you ask them because 
why waste their money or the experts' time? And so in that sense, it was very positive that there's an underlying intimidating quality about the aggression that is present in many. Yeah, and I think it's a double-edged culture because parents are more aware than ever of the importance of social and emotional intelligence, which didn't, when we were little, we didn't even recognize that as existing, much less the most important kind of intelligence when people grow up. So there's an awareness that it's necessary to have that component. But unfortunately, all the stresses of society and the pressures tend to work in the opposite direction of not promoting that. Right. But ironically, at least how I grew up years ago, there was so much free play and freedom to play that you learn social and emotional development, even though no one was aware that you were doing it. So there was that positive part. Because nobody stopped you from going outside and you could play and you could explore and you were always with your friends, which is very hard to do now in cities because we're all isolated in our own apartments and it's a whole production to get kids together. Right. And free play tends to take place indoors if it happens at all. Yeah which is really unfortunate because nature has such a growth promoting healing calming effect Mm -hmm. yeah yeah when i was a child like you guys our parents threw us out you know get out of the house we don't care what's out there they never thought twice that that something bad could happen to us it seemed it was never a thought yeah Yeah. it's just everybody's frightened yeah Yeah. And the more defensive parents are and society at large, the more trauma ridden because trauma responses are all about constriction based on on these kinds of defensive feelings like fear and anger and shame and and all of that. So society at large is getting more and more traumatized. Yeah. And I have parents who are so frightened for their kids to go outside in New York They hear various accounts of violence, and I'm sure the kids are picking this up, even if they don't say it directly to them, but they're very frightened of it. Yeah, their bodies pick it up. Their children pick it up from the bodies of their parents. Right, right. And there is a lot of violence in the streets. Less now in New York City than when I was a kid, and I was really terrified. I lived in New Jersey about a half hour from. York City. My dad was commuting every day. I was really scared of going to the city, but I loved going outside around me. So there's this narrative of the fear of examining our past trauma for fear of becoming re-traumatized by it. Could you talk about that? And somewhere in this graphic novel, there's a line about that we only become re-traumatized by our memories and our dreams if those memories come up without our ability to change the narrative, you know, to see it in a, in a new perspective, that if we're just looking at the memory or the dream, the elements of the dream in our old way of seeing that, that will just recycle the trauma. There are a couple of levels to your question. One is that when I do the dream work, 
with a traumatized person, I try very hard to make sure that there are some safe elements in the dream, or even that they're looking at the traumatic situation from a neutral place, like even to say, like, God forbid, there's a rape in the dream. What is the lamp see? What is that warm, soft, pretty lamp see? In other words, looking at it from something other than that person who's getting raped to soften it. But also, the point of the graphic novel is to reduce the anxiety by the playfulness, by the use of the image, by the witnessing, so that at this aesthetic distance, all these elements help guard against re-traumatization. And I'll add to that, that from the perspective of neurobiology now in the brain, there is one theory that what therapy does is called memory reconsolidation. And what that means is when we bring memories up in a context that's very different, that's safe, we can hold what happened completely differently. It actually changes the memories and then they get re-encoded in a less traumatic form. And a traumatic memory tends to be an unintegrated one where different aspects of the memory are located in sensory spots in the brain and separated from one another, which is why people have flashbacks that are completely sensory loaded in such a way that they they're actually back in that situation. And when we're with a safe other person and a different context and bring the memory up in that context in a way that makes a difference, then we can re-encode that memory or reconsolidate that memory more like a normal memory instead of a, a traumatic memory. And people, being with people relationally is probably the deepest way that we can do this because that's how mothers and fathers and caregivers soothe the infant as well is by their presence. And I can give a very personal example of reframing a memory or introducing a new memory. I don't know if you could call it a new memory or a reframing of a memory, but I did this dream work a few days ago. One was a memory in which I was 12, and I very much wanted my mother to notice me, and she was asleep on the couch, and she was depressed. And I felt in this memory, I felt this need for her to affirm me, and this anguish. Then I had a dream in which I was younger, I was five or six, playing with another girl, and we were like octopuses because we were moving limbs. And we had these magic shoes that had glitter on them, these white sneakers that had glitter that shot it into the next room where the grown-ups were. And this was like a reframing of the need for affirmation. We were just powerful. But instead of needing them to affirm us, we just thought it was funny that we had so much power. And so we were creating something, but not caring if they noticed us or not. So to me, that was like a complete transformation of the need for affirmation into a kind of feeling of power and fun. And 
you had the evolution of your dreams. You had one after another that addressed the second one, addressed the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It was like one was one day and then the next night was the next dream. Right. It was like an answer to the memory. It was like my own therapy happening inside my brain, my dreaming brain. Tell us about it. Well, because in the first dream, I was walking into my house after school, 12 years old, avoiding my mother, but wanting her in her depressed state to notice me and say, oh, you're home. And she didn't. And I just felt this anguish. In the second dream, I was in the dream as an adult standing next to another person, a man. But these little girls, myself and my friend, were kind of around the corner on a wall and they were having so much fun and giggling and they did something. They shot their glitter into the next room. But instead of saying, do you notice me? Do you notice me? They just thought it was so funny and so much fun. So they were freed of this anguish and just felt their own power. So from the point of view, again, of science, we now learn that dreams every night consolidate memory and learning during the day. So this is why there are some incredible studies about studying and this sort of thing. But staying up all night is not a good idea before a test. Much better to sleep and allow your unconscious to consolidate whatever it is you've studied than to keep studying. And another aspect of what you're saying is in the dream state, our unconscious can actually process some of the almost infinite amount of information that we filter out during our conscious state as well. So a lot more stuff can be processed and integrated in our dream state than would be, you know, if we were conscious and awake all the time, you know, being able to absorb, you know, roughly 20 to 40 bits of information in any moment. Well, in the REM state, we have access to a lot of associative memories, and that's how new ideas get formed. We can make distant connections that we may not be able to make as easily when we're awake. Yeah, and also we can transcend time so that past and future are no longer barriers or limitations to us. And we can transcend reality. So there are no limitations of reality either. And I find it very interesting that some cultures consider this dream state to be more real than everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. That is an absolutely fascinating thing. <laughs> yeah. I think some of my patients, and I'm sure Terry's also, are afflicted with the literal view so that even in their fantasies, they can't be imaginative. Their fantasies are limited by reality. And to me, this is very sad because at least in your fantasies, you should be able to transcend reality if you can't in your regular life. So I try to encourage that too, that their fantasies are free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not, we make out to be in this culture that, oh, that's just your imagination. Yeah. Because yeah, without the imagination. There goes our superpowers. Yeah. And there goes any progress of any kind, scientifically, exactly. literary wise, anyway. And empathy, because it takes imagination to have empathy. Yes, it does. 
Yeah, exactly. You have to realize that you have to be able to go into the other person and really feel what they feel, but also know you're not the other person and take perspective. So that's a very complicated metaphorical process. Yep. Yep. It's the great journey of life to to learn all these things and integrate them. Yeah. It's been so wonderful talking to you guys. So how can people find out more about this book and your work? So the eelandtheblowfish.com, eelandblowfish.com with and spelled out A-N-D is where they can really get a tour of the book and purchase the book. And we both have websites uh, where all of my other books and all of my chapters and papers can be downloaded for free, the chapters and papers. And a lot of them are about creativity and intuition and this sort of thing. And the books can be seen and purchased as well, including a coloring book that I have, a a mindfulness coloring book, which helps adults calm down and cultivate good qualities of mind. And Leanne, you have a website too. Yeah, uh, just a redone, beautiful website done actually by Terry's daughter, Darby Tarlow, who is great at doing websites, especially for therapists. And my website is leannedomash.com. Thank you, Danielle, for having us. It's always delightful to chat with you. Yes, this has totally been my pleasure. And thank you so much, Tony, for understanding our work so deeply. I really feel moved by that. So my guests have been Leanne Domash and Terry Marks Tarlow, both of whom are clinical psychotherapists and authors of numerous books. And they're the authors of this graphic novel we've been talking about, The Eel and the Blowfish, a graphic novel of dreams, trauma, and healing. Terry and Leanne, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you again. And until next time, be well. And you too. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Everyone's too scared to open their eyes up But everyone's too scared to close them Everyone's frightened, they don't know what's coming But everyone's frightened of knowing Everyone's reading the rules of engagement And everyone's starting to doubt them Everyone's reaching to put on a seatbelt But this kind of ride comes without them I want you to think of me sitting and singing beside you I wish we could meet all the people behind us in The climb to the crest is less frightening with someone to clutch you. 
But isn't it nice when we're all afraid at the same time? And it's just a ride. It's just a ride. And you've got the choice to get off any time that you like. It's just a ride. It's just a ride. The alternatives, nothingness, might as well give it a try. Everyone's terrified that they'll be justified by the collapse that will happen. Everyone's placing their bets just in case the whole thing's a profound disappointment. Everyone's trying to stay on the side where the water's just boiling more slowly. Frogs in a pot. Oh, that's one thing I've got. At least some of the frogs in here know me. I want you to think of me sitting and singing beside you. The chain pulls us up, and we know that we're all gonna die. And the noise of the screaming can blind and distract you. But isn't it nice when we all can scream at the same time? And it's just a ride. It's just a ride. And you've got the choice to get off any time that you like. It's just a ride. It's just a ride. The alternatives, nothingness, might as well give it a try. And as we all go.
Everyone's getting real scared to come out Because coming out's going down badly Feel the city breaking and everybody's shaking And I just want someone to hold me Some are too scared to let go of their children And some are too scared now to have them Suicide, homicide, genocide Man, that's a ton of sides you can choose from I want you to think of me sitting and singing beside you I wish we could meet all the people who got left behind The ride is so loud it can make you think no one is listening But isn't it nice when we all can cry at the same Just a ride And you've got the choice To get off any time That you like It's just a ride It's just a ride The alternatives Nothingness Might as well give it a try And as we all go down And as we all go round And as we switch from side to side Everything is gonna Sister you miss To the father you don't want to write It's just a ride It's just a ride From the lover you left To the one that you're frightened to find It's just a It's just a ride 
From the baby lost to the one that you're growing inside Come on out, darling And don't you And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.